Yeah, absolutely. How rad is that? Well, like Hillary said, guys, my name is Jordan Mazin. I am the high school pastor here. That is just a glimpse of the incredible, incredible week that we had uh, about three weeks ago in Lost Canyon, right next to the Grand Canyon in Arizona. It was unbelievable. We, had, we brought 300 high school students out there, uh, and just incredible things took place. From the very fun, we got to see students conquer fears and go on zip lines, and this giant swing that takes you 40 feet in the air and leaves you staring straight down at the ground and then drops you. Um, students going on the blob. A student here from Mariner's MV... We took home the Blob Championship trophy, so yes, best church, main campus right here, MV. Um, It it was absolutely incredible. And in addition to that, I mean, like you heard Nick's story up there, um, students were able to experience and hear God um, like never before in their lives. Um, Just being able to unplug from kind of the distractions and the routines that they're used to in life and just plug into God and into friendships and mentorship relationships where they're able to to just be in God's presence um, is such an incredible life-changing thing. And um, it's just been so cool even coming back now, you know, three weeks outside of that, hearing the stories, the friendships that have built, um, the the change that has happened in in lives of students has, has been absolutely incredible. Um, So I'd love, I mean, if you guys want to find me on the patio afterwards, ask me. I'd love to talk more about it. For those of you guys who did join us in praying for the students and the leaders, thank you. I mean, we felt so covered in prayer the entire week, um, from being in good health all week to having lots of fun to God doing big things. His presence was very clearly there. Um, But this morning, like Hillary said, um, it's it's my privilege to be up here and to kind of um, share with you the next chapter of our, of our series, Epic, that we've been kind of walking through, right? And so for those of you guys who've been here throughout the summer, you've been a part of this journey where we're talking about the heroes and the villains of the Bible. And what's really cool is the Bible kind of has like the, the stereotype of the hero and the stereotype of the villain, right, in Jesus and in Satan, all good and all evil. But the people we're looking at through this series are, have a little bit more in common with us, right? They've got a little bit of good in them. They've got a, a potential for evil. They've got messiness. They've got a complicated story. And yet, God wants to use them and uses them as heroes in his story of redemption. And so we've kind of taken this verse out of Hebrews 11, um, to kind of be the banner verse for our series. And he- Hebrews 11, for those of you guys who are unfamiliar, it's called the Hall of Faith. It kind of lists some of the people throughout the Bible who did incredible things. And here's what it says, Hebrews 11, 32 to 34. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about those who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength. Right, and so that's, that's the series that we find ourselves in, the context that we find ourselves in. And for me today, um, I get to share a bit about a guy named Jacob with you. If you've been around the church, the Bible, for a while, you, you're familiar with his name, familiar with his story. Um, if you're new to the whole church thing, God thing, um, first of all, welcome. I'm so excited that you're here. And secondly, you are in for a really weird story with lots of family drama, so I hope you're excited for it. Um, but before we jump in, let me pray real quick, and then, and then we'll, we'll get going. Heavenly Father, um, thank you, God, for setting aside a day, Sunday, to just unplug from our crazy, busy schedules and just rest in you, rest with other people on the same journey of trying to to figure out what life is all about and how, um, how to get the most out of it. God, thank you for your presence here this morning. And Lord, like we, like we do every Sunday, God, we just want to offer you Uh, just a a couple seconds of silence to just put our minds and our heart at rest and prepare ourselves to hear what you have to say to us this morning, God. Thank you, Jesus. 
Jesus, we love you so much. Speak to us this morning. Amen. Okay, so high school pastor, right? I have been doing youth ministry in various capacities for the last five years. And like Hillary said, one of the reigning questions for junior hires is this question of, do you like me? And I think that question kind of remains true even on into our adulthood, right? If we're really honest with ourselves, we're kind of always trying to answer that question. But through my experience of doing high school ministry and working with high school students and working with their parents and their families, and even through my involvement of, of facilitating and participating in rooted groups here at Mariners over the last few years, I've, I've gotten to see that as we get older, that, that question kind of evolves a little bit. And as much as we're still asking, do you like me? We're also asking another question. And that question is, who am I? Because when we're asking, do you like me? Who is the me that you like? You know, and so, so we're constantly trying to refine this question, and, and we all encounter points in our life where we're not sure what that looks like. So I thought for fun to introduce myself to you guys, we'd go through a little montage of my life and the different um, ways I've answered that question, uh, either by choice or by default. Um, so the first one here, this is sweet as an angel, Jordan. Um, look at me. My parents placed me in a field of flowers to really enhance that point. Um, if you guys are close enough, you can see how incredibly 90s my outfit is. Um, thank you, Mom and Dad, for that. I love it. Um, I, was, I was an easy child. My parents had me at 17, and they said I came out, and I was so easy with feeding and sleeping and everything. They wondered why people complained about parenting until they had number two, three, and four. So um, the next stage of my life, still pretty sweet, but now you can kind of see that crazy gleam in my eye, right? Like I am trying to rip Stretch Armstrong in half right there. And so for those of you guys who are, you know, your parents of kids this age, you know that sense of just energy and craziness, right? And so the next stage, um, I was embarrassed to show this one. This is awkward junior high, Jordan. I literally, I was not sure if I was going to put this in here or not for you. Um, you can't really see it in the terrible quality of the yearbook photo, but I had the worst acne, braces, and those horrible glasses. I don't know how my parents ever let me pick those. Um, but this, I mean, we talk about how junior high is an awkward stage. I epitomize that for all of the rest of us. You're welcome, right? So this is awkward junior high Jordan. Then there's athlete Jordan. So this is my freshman year of high school playing football at Mission Viejo High School. Go Diablos. Um, I was kind of an athlete on and off all growing up, um, but that kind of it ended here, climaxed here, because I realized I just wasn't cut out for, for running much. Um, so so this, is, this is athlete Jordan. This is kind of where that ended. And then my next stage was kind of angsty, rebellious teenage Jordan. Uh, and I have, to, I have to tell you guys, I tried to find a picture that better show, showed this stage off. This is so timid. But when I asked my mom where those pictures were, she goes, well, we weren't so sure you were going to grow out of that phase, so we didn't want to document it, you know, as much as possible. Um, so this was, this was about as much as I could find. This is actually me. Um, I was so rebellious and angsty that I ended up getting sent to boarding school for seven months. Um, so this is me at the first phase of that boarding school in Mexico. My parents came down to visit me after I'd been there a couple months. And so this is me there. I had toned down a little bit after being in boarding school. Uh, so then after that, I came up and I cleaned up my act. And you get all business, Jordan, right? All business. So my grandfather has been in the financial planning world for many years. He wanted to hire me on. I was like, hey, I'm 18 and have nothing better to do. Absolutely. So you can see lots of gel in my hair, no beard, suit, tie. I have never looked so dapper. Um, and so that is all business, Jordan. And now before we show the next one, I, and I need to build up to it a little bit. For you. I just want to prepare you guys just a little bit. Um, high school pastor, remember, went to camp three weeks ago. One of the things at camp 
uh, is theme night. Theme night, everyone dresses up according to whatever that year's theme is. It's very fun, lots of creativity and variety in the outfits, right? So um, this year, it was 90s pop star night, okay? Awesome, born and raised in the 90s, perfect, right? Unfortunately, this year, I had a much bigger role in planning camp, so amidst all the planning and the logistics and the chaos, I didn't have a lot of time. So the night before camp, I'm at home packing with my wife, and I say, babe, I... I've got nothing. I, I don't have any ideas. I don't have any supplies. I have no ideas for this theme night. And she gets, she gets this mischievous little gleam in her eye. And she says, I've got just what you need in my closet. Now, husbands, if you ever hear this from your wife, don't listen. It's a terrible idea. But what she ended up pulling out gives us Britney Spears, Jordan. Um, oh, you guys are too good. Okay, we can take that down. Um, for those of you guys who are a little concerned seeing your church's high school pastor dress up as Britney Spears, I assure you that was only for a few minutes to get a few good laughs. Wearing your wife's skirt is much less comfortable than it seems, so I changed into normal clothes very quickly after that. Um, but, but kind of the point of all of this is that throughout my life, I kind of answered the question of who am I in multiple different ways, as we can see. Um, and behind those funny pictures, as, as silly as they were, there's kind of a, a deeper storyline, a, a storyline behind the scenes that not everyone was privy to. And that storyline um, was my dad growing up had his own struggle with answering the question, who am I? His own struggle of identity, of value, of worth. And so on one hand, he was committed to his role as dad and as husband, and he was great in those roles. But at the same time, in the other hand, he struggled with this identity he was born with, the identity of being an addict. And so throughout my whole life, he has struggled with addiction to alcohol and cocaine. And so every time he would relapse, my, my parents would separate and he would move out and he would work on his sobriety for months, years, however long it would take. And then when my mom felt like she could trust him again, he'd move back in. Uh, and, and he'd live with us for however long it took until he would relapse again. And so this, this own struggle of his identity led to a struggle of my own identity, right? Because growing up, I had, this, I had this desire and this need to be a kid. And at the same time, there was kind of this unspoken burden placed on me to be the man of the house. You see, I was the oldest of four. Uh, and so even though my mom, no one else put this pressure on me, but I kind of felt this need to like let my, let my brothers and sister look up to me and, and be the man of the house. And so I was kind of split between this, this identity crisis, this question of who am I? What, what am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to do? And so for you, what in your life, where have you kind of asked that question? Where have you had that, that question of identity, of who am I? What, what, am I, what am I here for, right? And, and so through doing five years of youth ministry, and like I said, participating in tons of rooted groups over the years here at Mariners, um, I've kind of been able to identify two primary sources of identity confusion amongst us, whether it's high school students or adults. There's, there's these two main areas where we kind of, we have this identity information coming in, right? And so the, the first... Uh, is those of us who've had an identity thrust upon us, right? External forces, whether it's other people or it's circumstances or situations, they kind of place this identity on us, right? So, so for some of you, um, this is especially common among men, but women, you might, you might recognize it applies to you as well. Um, you, you've kind of been directly or indirectly told that your worth, your value, your identity is directly tied to your ability to achieve things, to accomplish things, to, to have success. Uh, and so, so your life, you've been working so hard to prove 
to yourself and to others that, that you're worth it, that you're valuable. Ladies in the room, you guys are daily bombarded by messages that your worth is directly tied to your physical appearance. And so I've worked with high school girls, I've spoken to adult women, and I've seen the devastation that this identity confusion creates. It, has, it leads to eating disorders and, and unhealthy relationships and, and other, other symptoms. Some of you guys, you've made, you've made choices in your past, you've made decisions in your past, and now you feel like you're kind of defined by those behaviors, right? Because you did that, now you're kind of stuck in this, this pattern and this rut and you can't get out of it. Others of you have had stuff done to you, whether it's abuse or something else, and now you feel like you are trapped in this path because you can't find freedom from that pain and that hurt. So that's the first source, the source of having an identity kind of put on us by either other people or situations. The second source is, is kind of one I think we're all naturally a little predisp uh, predispositioned for, right? It's, it's this idea that it's a me-first mentality. And I think all of us can probably associate with this at least, at least a little bit. Uh, for some of us, it manifests itself more materially, right? We, we, we go out and we buy the house, the car, the clothes, the stuff, and we surround our, ourselves with all of these things that we think are going to, to make our lives fuller and, and happier. Um, some of us do it and we can't even afford it, so we're just building up the debt. Others of us, it's maybe less of a material thing. It's more of a reputation thing, right? And so, so we, we want to craft how people see us so that people will like us and love us and enjoy us and want to be around us. I think this one is especially common in this age of, of social media and selfies, right? We kind of spit out our, our highlight reel of our life online so people see all of our vacation photos and our kids all smiling and acting perfect, right? And, you know, our, whatever it is, we, we, put, we put out this image of, hey, look, everything's, everything's going great, guys like me. I know especially for high school students, but even for many of us who, who have, have grown out of high school, um, it, we just want to be accepted, we just want to belong, we just want to know, do you like me, right? And so we'll do those things to, to gain that acceptance because that's what we're longing for. And so that's that, that me first, that kind of putting my own needs and wants, that's kind of that second source, uh, a little bit of, of identity crisis. Um, and so whether you identify more with the first category, the second category, or you're like, man, I find myself in both of those, the, the, the reality is we are all in this journey to answer, who am I? And a part of that, again, is, is why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? And so there's this lie, though, that we all tend to believe in the midst of that. We all tend to believe this lie that we are on, oh, the only ones on that journey. Everyone around us has it all together. And again, the social media thing only helps make this more pervasive, right? Because we see people here at church walking in the door or at work or at school, wherever we may find ourselves, and they come in and they're smiling, they're on time, everyone's shirts are tucked in, right? They're looking great. And we're like, man, they seem to have it all together. Then we go on Facebook and we see, oh, they just went to Hawaii. They just bought a new house. Man. They've got it all together. We're the only ones who have this pain and this hurt that we're hiding. We're trying to keep it together, but we're not sure how much longer we can hold it. And everyone else just seems to have it. But the reality is, we're all, we're all fighting that battle. We're all walking that journey. Some of us are better at hiding it than others. And, and the reality also is, is that since the beginning of humanity, this tension between who I am and who I feel I want to be or who I feel I have to be, there's, there's this disparity, and that gap causes us so much pain. And so like I said earlier, we're going to be jumping in to the story of Jacob. So if you guys brought your Bible with you, whether it's the physical Bible, Bible app, go ahead and open up to Genesis 32. 
Um, if you guys don't have one of those two things, you can also pull out your outline, which is in your bulletin, or we'll also have the verses up on the screen. So feel free to follow along in those areas. Uh, and so we're going to be jumping in Genesis 32, verse 22. Um, for those of you guys who are familiar uh, with the story, you're going to notice we're jumping in a little bit in the midst of things right now, so just bear with me. We're going to start in the middle, we're going to work our way backwards, and we'll catch up, and it will all make sense. So we'll get started now. Genesis 32, verse 22, it says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants. And now some of you guys are like, hmm, two wives, two female. Okay, I can dig this Bible thing, right? Slow down, slow down. And his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man then asked him, what is your name? Now, this is kind of weird if we think about it. They've just been wrestling all night until daybreak, and they are just now exchanging names with each other. That's a little weird. Jacob, he answered. Okay, so here we have Jacob. He's headed somewhere, obviously, with some people and some stuff, and then he separates them from them, and he's alone. He's by himself. He wrestles with this stranger all night long, and then they exchange names. So we're kind of naturally left with three questions that we, ha we have to ask ourselves. The first... Um, for those of us who, who aren't very familiar, is who's this Jacob guy? Where's he going? You know, what, what's this all about? We're obviously in the middle of something, so what's going on here? The second question we have to ask ourselves is, why is this introduction so significant, right? There's been this buildup. Jacob sends everyone off away from him, and he waits in the night, and then wrestles all night long with this stranger. And then he just says, what is your name? I'm Jacob. Like, what's, why is that introduction so significant? And then the, the third question at least for me, maybe not all of you guys are asking this question, is, is it normal to wrestle strangers in the middle of the night? Because the Bible just seems to like kind of run into this, like this is a normal occurrence, uh, which seems a little bizarre to me. Um, so that was my natural third question that arose. And so to get the answers to those questions, we have to flip back a little earlier. And what we find is, if we rewind, is this actually isn't Jacob's first wrestling match. And in fact, when Jacob first shows up on the scene, he's already in the midst of a wrestling match, and he's not even born yet. So if you guys want to follow along with me in your Bibles, we're going to jump back to Genesis 25, and we're going to start in verse 21. It says, Isaac, Isaac is Jacob's dad, just for the record. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. And the babies jostled within her. So pause here. Rebecca goes in for her ancient sonogram, and the technician flips around the screen. She says, well, congratulations, you're having twins. And wow, talk about sibling rivalry. They are going at it in there, right? And so Rebecca responds with something I think any of you parents have probably said at least once in your life. Why is this happening to me? Right? How many of you parents are ready for summer to be over and school to start back up, right? There's something about kids being stuck in a cramped, warm place for three months, or in Rebecca's case, nine months, that causes a little bit of unrest. And so Rebecca goes from praying to have children to saying, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. God's given her a picture that something bigger is at work here than just giving birth to twins. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, 
and his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Okay, so here we get a little bit of a first glimpse of the literal naming that the Hebrew culture uh, employs. See, for, for my family, they have two main criteria for naming their children. There are four of us. First criteria, has to be hard to rhyme with to deter schoolyard bullying. So we have Jordan, Landon, Devin, and Madeline. Great, can't rhyme with any of those. What they didn't think about, nicknames for Madeline, Maddie. Fatty Maddie, Braddy Maddie, Caddy Maddie. Luckily, I don't think anyone called her any of those things except for her older brother, so that was good. Um, but that was their first criteria. The second criteria was... Uh, the, the ancient meanings of, of the names, right? So my first name is Jordan. That means the descender or the descendant. Um, and my middle name is Michael, which means um, of or from God. So my parents were trying to kind of confer my role in God's family to me. I'm a descendant of God. Sweet, right? But as you guys may be aware, our culture doesn't really consider meanings of names very much. And I grew up during the reign of Chicago Bulls basketball, basketball king Michael Jordan. Um, and so growing up, no one ever asked me, hey, oh, were you named as a descendant of God? No, it was always, were you named after Michael Jordan? To which I replied, yes, can't you tell by my natural physique and athletic ability? But no, actually, my 17-year-old suburban white mom did not name me after a basketball player she had never heard of until I was a few years old. Um, but Esau, on the other hand, they use little names. Esau's name means covered in hair. Literally, like, if they were speaking in their language, they're saying he's covered in hair. Can you imagine this? Not only does he have to go through his life covered in excessive body hair, he also has to point it out every time he introduces himself to somebody. Hey, nice to meet you. What's your name? Great, I'm covered in hair. You can only imagine the other person snickering like, yes, yes, you are, right? So, so there's this, this awkward naming thing. They, they, they take their names very literally. So we're going to jump back in to verse 26, the first part of the verse. It says, after this... His brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. Right, so we read earlier they were jostling within each other, and it, it, it appears that that wrestling continued all the way until birth, because Jacob, born second, came out grabbing the heel of Esau. And you see, Jacob literally means heel grabber. They have a word for that. Isn't that awesome? Heel grabber. So Jacob's name means heel grabber because he came out grabbing onto Esau's heel. And so for, for those of us in here who, when we talked about those two sources, you kind of identified more with the first source of identity confusion, right? You feel like others or your past or circumstances have kind of thrust an identity upon you. This is kind of what's happening to Jacob. Because of something he's done before he's even able to make a conscious decision, he's having this identity placed upon him. That really plays a big part in his life growing up. And you see, being the firstborn son meant a lot of things back in that day. It doesn't mean quite as much these days. I can tell you from experience, I got way worse than my later siblings. But uh, it, it meant a lot back then. There were tons of benefits. There were two major benefits. The first one was called the birthright, and the second, the blessing. And we'll get a little bit more uh, into detail about those a little bit later on. But what I want you guys to, to think about is clearly Jacob was too young to know, okay, if I come out first, I get the birthright and the blessing, so I'm going to try to grab that heel and get first right. He's not thinking that clearly. But I think that instinctively we all, as humans, have this me-first nature, right? And it's that second source of identity. I think instinctively we all know that the world rewards the first, the fastest, 
the greatest, the best. And so instinctively, we are all born with this desire to, to get ourselves into that. We're willing to do whatever it takes to be first, to be best, to be greatest, right? Whatever it takes to get that promotion, to get that next sale, to get that scholarship into that school that we're trying to get into, to get our kid onto that sports team, whatever it takes, because we know that's how the world systems work. And so I think Jacob kind of had this own instinctive, you know, thought within him, even though he wasn't familiar with what it really, really all meant. So we're going to continue with Jacob's story, um, but his story is rather long. So, so we're going to glaze kind of over seven chapters. I'm just going to start summarizing it, but I would love for you guys, I included the passages in the outline, go and read them throughout the week. Make sure that I'm not making anything up. See if God has something else to say to you about this story. Um, but for now, I'm, I'm kind of going to just summarize. And so as the boys get older, Esau, right, he's the hairy one covered in hair. Uh, he grows up to be the total man's man. Like he loves sharpening knives and going hunting and doing really manly stuff. Makes sense because he's covered in body hair. What else are you going to do, right? He's kind of pigeonholed into that identity. Jacob, on the other hand, is described in the Bible as being content to stay among the tents. What does that mean, you ask? Great question. In plainer language, content to stay among the tents means he's a mama's boy. So, well, Esau is out slaying wild lions and bringing them home for dinner. Jacob is at home with mom, Rebecca, baking brownies and watching Bachelor in Paradise, right? So, and I'm not saying for mama's boys out there, nothing on you. I'm a mama's boy too, nothing on you. It just gives us a little bit of context for the next story. Right, so we talked about the birthright and the blessing, the two major benefits to being born first. Esau gets both of those things, the birthright and the blessing. Well, one day, Esau is out doing man stuff. He's hunting, he's killing, whatever it is he's doing, right? And he comes home, and Jacob's in the kitchen, like, doing some kitchen stuff, right? He's got, he's got the culinary gift. So he's doing his thing, and, and Esau barges in, and he goes, Jacob, I'm hungry. I'm going to die. Parents, if you guys have any kids, like, above the age of, like, seven... You guys may have experienced this. I know I did it to my parents all the time. Mom, I'm starving. <laughs> my parents were always really good about like explaining, okay, Jordan, you're not starving. There are kids in Africa who are actually starving. You're just very hungry. And me, growing up, how would I respond? No, Mom, I'm starving, right? So, and that's kind of the picture that we get here. We get Esau barging in, and he's saying, Jacob, I'm starving. And so Jacob gets, he gets, he sees an opportunity here. And so he says, okay, I'll trade you your birthright for, for my stew that I'm making. Now see what the birthright is, the birthright means that the oldest son gets twice as big of, uh, twice as big of a slice of the inheritance pie as all the other sons. So in a two-son family like this with Jacob and Esau, Esau would get two-thirds of the inheritance and Jacob would get one-third of the inheritance, right? So that's, that's the birthright. So Jacob is saying, I will trade you this bowl of stew, Esau, for your extra part of the inheritance. And we could spend a whole, an entire message on Esau's response right now about how we are all kind of a people sometimes, much like Esau, who let our current appetites determine our future, aren't we? We let our need for immediate gratification override our long-term well-being. And so Esau trades his birthright for the stew. And later, that's, that's not really enough for Jacob. See, because when we're stuck in this me-first mentality, what we have is never enough. 
we're always in pursuit of more. You see, C.S. Lewis has a really cool quote. And that quote says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is the comparison that makes us proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. See, for Jacob and for so many of us, it's all about the er, right? It's not enough to be wealthy. We have to be wealthier than them. It's not enough to be thin. We have to be thinner than her. It's not enough to be buff. We have to be buffer than him. Fill in the blank. But the problem is with er, that once we get er, if we get there, we're going to find someone with still more er just as C.S. Lewis said. And so we're stuck in this constant cycle in the pursuit of Ur. And so that's how Jacob was. He wanted more Ur. He got the birthright, but that wasn't enough. He wasn't fully the firstborn yet. He needed that blessing too. And the blessing was considered to be a higher value than the, the birthright. Um, blessing, what it was, is it was a prayer that the dad would confer. He'd actually do it for all of his sons, but the oldest son would get kind of the best prayer, if you will, right? And it was just a prayer declaring the things that God was going to do for that son, right? You're going to conquer everybody. You're going to be king. You're going to be rich and have lots of stuff. Uh, And so down the road, Jacob and his mom hatch a little plan here to hijack the blessing as well. So at this time, we're fast-forwarded a few years older. Isaac is getting much older, the dad. He's getting much older. His eyesight is starting to fail. He knows that his time's kind of drawing to an end, and so he's ready to to give his blessing. So he calls in Esau, the hairy one, the older one, and he says, I'm going to bless you, but first I want you to go hunt me a meal, kill something, prepare it, bring it back to me, and then I'll bless you. Esau says, great, dad, I'm going to do it. Meanwhile, Mama Rebecca... It's kind of like on the other side of the tent wall, listening in, right? And so she hears that, and so she goes and gets Jacob, and they hatch a plan. They hatch a plan to go bring some goats out from outside in their, in their yard and bring them in, prepare those for stew, and to put the skins of the goats on the neck and the hair, or on the arms of uh, Jacob, so that he feels like Esau. So as Isaac is placing his hands on Jacob, he, he thinks it's Esau, right? And so, growing up, really up until recently, in this story, I always thought Jacob was, was the victim. I kind of felt bad for him. I don't know if any of you guys have kind of felt similar to that. Um, it's like, come on, mom's the real evil one here, right? He's just trying to honor his parents like the Bible says. He's just trying to be a good son and do his thing. Guys, you want to know what I recently found out? Jacob is 76 years old at this point. 76 years old. There is a certain point which you have to take ownership of your life and stop blaming mommy. And if you have not done it yet, 76 years old seems like a really good place to start, right? 76. This, this is clearly a failure to launch problem. And, uh, and mom's got to do something about that here. So Jacob, at 76, goes along with mom's plan. And he does voice a little bit of hesitation. But I think the, the thought of getting more er is worth it for him. So he ends up going through with the plan. So they make the stew. They cover him in the skins. And he walks in. And remember, dad's eyesight is, is going bad. So, so Jacob comes in. And Isaac's a little skeptical. He, he goes, you don't sound like Esau. You sound like Jacob. But he feels him. And he feels hairy. And he eats the stew. And he's like, all right. And he ends up being convinced. So he blesses Jacob. And it's interesting here, Jacob is so caught up in his me-first mentality and the deception it has taken to, to maintain that identity that his dad can't even recognize him anymore, right? And so, so Isaac gives Jacob the blessing, Jacob leaves, and for those of you guys who know the story, you know that Esau comes in just minutes later, and he says, Dad, I'm back, here's your food, I'm ready, bless me. And Isaac goes, wait, wait, who are you? I just blessed you. 
and they, they kind of find out what happened, and Esau, understandably, is furious, and so he vows to kill his brother Jacob. Now, Jacob, smart man. He knows he's good with knitting needles and rolling pins. His brother's good with knives and bows and arrows, so he does what any of us would do, and he turns tail and he runs, and he ends up on the run for 21 years. 21 years. And I think this is where our story really starts to intersect with Jacob's story. Because for most of us, that gap between who we are and who we feel we want to be or who we feel we have to be, there's, there's pain in that gap. And even though we might be able to grab on to all the things that, that we think will make us happy and we're able to surround ourselves with these things and these identities and, and whatever it may be, We might get all that we want, just like Jacob did. He got the birthright. He got the blessing. In essence, he got everything it meant to be firstborn son, and yet he still found himself on the run and in hiding. I think that's so true in so many of our own lives, that we we might get everything we want, and yet we still feel unsatisfied. We still feel unfulfilled. But luckily, God is in the business of of using people with history, with baggage, with complicated stories, with messiness in their life. He's in the business of using us as heroes in his story of redemption. And so after 21 years of running and hiding, Jacob was able to get a better idea of who he was. Not as Jacob the heel grabber, not as Jacob um, pretending to be Esau, but Jacob as who God created him to be. And so he decides to head back to Esau and to seek forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption. And that is where we found ourselves at the start of this morning. You see, Jacob's on his way back to Esau, ready to get forgiveness. And and on his journey, he kind of separates from his family. He wants to actually send them ahead because he's hoping that they'll kind of break Esau down a little bit before he eventually gets there, so he, there's less of a chance of him getting killed. And he's, a, he's approached by this, this stranger, right? And we come to find out later that this stranger is God. But I want for you guys, just shout out some answers for me. When we first read about this wrestling incident, how old did you guys picture Jacob? How old did you picture Jacob in your head? 20s? Yeah? Yeah, 20s, 30s. For me growing up, it was always 20s, 30s, maybe 50s, but if he was in his 50s, it was like George Clooney 50s, right? Um, Like I was picturing wrestling match from the movie 300 is kind of the visual I had in my brain. Guys, do the math with me real quick. He was 76 years old when he stole that blessing. He was on the run for 21 years. Now, I was a math Olympics champion all growing up, so let me help you out here. 97. 97 years old. Is it any wonder that his hip got knocked out of place while wrestling with God at 97 years old? Nope. Makes total sense. So anyway, back to part of the verse that we read earlier. The man said, remember the man being God, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, Jacob has spent his whole life trying to grab on to other things, trying to grab on to heels and blessings and birthrights. But now he has grabbed on to God and he says, I am not letting go. Right? And, and look what happens next. Verse 27. The man asks him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. 
And remember the last time Jacob was answered this, asked this question when we read it? He, he replied with Esau. He was still having this kind of identity crisis of who he wanted to be and, and going after the things that he thought he wanted and that he needed. But this time he's ready to be honest. He's ready to be vulnerable. He's ready to admit that he's Jacob. He's the second born. He's the heel grabber. He's got flaws. He's got messiness. But he's ready amidst all of that to grab onto God and to not let go. And it's then, it's in that moment when he's, when he's ready to face his, his own reality, his messiness and his flaws and his story, and he's ready to just hold on to God and nothing else, that he's able to take hold of God's new identity for him. So read with me the next verse, verse 28. It says, Then the man, again God, said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome See, there's some disagreement about exactly what Israel means. Uh, Some say it means fights with God. Some say it means God fights. Some say triumphant with God. Others say prevails with God. But they all kind of revolve around one theme. And that is exactly the new identity that Jacob needed. This identity that he wasn't, he didn't need to pursue the things that he thought he wanted or needed, the birthrights or the blessing. He could simply pursue the things that God wanted and that he was guaranteed to be triumphant in that. There, was no, there didn't have to be that gap any longer between who he was and who he wanted to be or was trying to be or felt he had to be. He could just be him and know that he could be triumphant with God. And so for us, Mariners, I, the question this morning is what is it for us? Some of you guys are here this morning and you simply needed to hear that you have permission to wrestle with God. Maybe you've been raised to think that you had to get your act together before you could go to God. Uh, Maybe you just weren't even sure how to go about approaching God. Do I have to use really nice words and formal language, you know? Um, And so for you, you just needed permission to wrestle with God. If you guys were here last week, you heard Jeff McGuire talk about his friend who had to um, pastor a funeral for an eight-month-old baby and how the, the people at that funeral were angry at God. They were upset. And and the beautiful thing is God gives us that freedom to come to him in the midst of our anger, in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our sadness and frustration and wrestle with him. And so some of you just needed permission to do that today. Others of you, maybe you knew you could wrestle with God. Maybe maybe you're in the midst of wrestling now. And so for you, you just need the encouragement to keep holding on. Don't let go. For some of you guys... Whatever you're in the midst of, your relationship, your marriage is falling apart, relationships with your kids are strained, school is hard, whatever it may be, work is hard, you just have to say, God, I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to hold on to you and I'm not going to let go. I know for me, over the last year and a half this has happened, um, it's been a real part of my life. Um, I told you guys about my, me growing up. Because of that, I, I was always a mama's boy. Mom was around more often than dad. She and I have a lot of similarities in our personality. I was always very close. She was one of my best friends, still is. But a year and a half ago, January 3rd, 2013, she was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiforme, a very aggressive form of brain cancer, a tumor right in the center of her brain. And it has completely wiped out her short-term memory. It's completely changed her personality. And there's been some good amidst it. They, were, they expected her to live 17 months. We're now 20 months in, and she's still, she's still here. My dad has been an incredible caretaker and has shared how redemptive this process has been for him, feeling like the family can now depend on him instead of having to rescue him. 
and that's so cool to hear. But at the same time, I've had to watch two of my brothers walk away from God because of how much pain they're in. I've had to watch my sister be crippled by sadness and depression because of a plethora of things, but this is a big factor in it. I've had to watch my parents endure the financial strain. I personally have lost one of my best friends. Although she's still here, she's nothing like the mom I grew up with. Her personality is completely different. Her memory is gone. And so I wrestle with God, sometimes screaming, sobbing. Um, I don't use the most polite language all the time. But God has given me the peace to say, God, I'm going to hold on to you and not let go, regardless of what happens. My mom might die. My mom might be miraculous healed. And regardless, I'm going to hold on to you, and I'm not going to let go. And so for you, whatever you're going through, what is it going to take for you to do the same, to grab a hold of God and to not let go? In a second, we're going to sing some songs to respond um, to whatever God is saying to you this morning. Um, But first, what I want you guys all to do is um, reach into your pocket or your purse or whatever and pull out your phone. Just hold it. This is an all play. Everyone do it. Unless you're a really good Christian, unless you left your phone in the car, then you don't have to play. I'm just kidding. Okay, grab your phone. This represents one of the best things in our culture that we are really good at, at grabbing a hold of and not letting go. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. So what we're doing right now by holding it in our hands is we're, we're drawing a mental connection Kinetic learning, for those of you guys who are into like scientific phrases. Um, Kinetic connection right now. When you use this over the course of this next week, let it just be a reminder to you that as good as you are at grabbing a hold of your phone and not letting go, do that with God. Wherever you're at, wherever you're at in your story of answering the question, who am I? Who am I supposed to be? Who do I have to be? The gap in the middle, it's there's pain and there's questions. Hold on to God and don't let go. And for some of you guys, you are in a place of weakness where you don't even feel like you're capable of holding on to God and not letting go. Find some friends who love you and care about you who will hold on for you. Because that's what church is all about, guys. That is what we are here for. If you don't have those friends yet, let's get you plugged into Rooted or something and get you those people that you can count on. I'm going to pray real quick and then the band's going to come up and, and we'll sing. Heavenly Father, God, thank you. Um, thank you that we don't have to have it all together to come to you, God. Thank you that you give us permission to wrestle with you in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our frustration, in the midst of our anger, God. And thank you that um, when the other things that we try to place our identity, our value, our worth in fall short, God, and cause us pain and frustration, Lord. Thank you that we always have you to grab a hold of and not let go, God, knowing that you won't fail us, won't leave us, God. Lord, I just ask um, that we as a community would be a people who demonstrate that, God, that our friends who don't yet know you would see us and would see that we don't necessarily have our lives all together, but that we're willing to be vulnerable and transparent in our pain and in our journey, God, and that, that there is hope in the midst of all of it, God. Let us be a people who are there for each other, that when we can't hold on to you and not let go, God, that, that we would hold on for each other to you. We love you so much, God. Amen.